0: A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle.
1: A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Thank you for
0: listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
1: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do something different, thought of this idea a little while ago, and really enjoyed it. So basically what this is, is it is three different conversations with people who cover the three teams that fin- that won the lottery in respect. So the Celtics, the Lakers, and the Sixers. And it's Jared Weiss, who covers the Celtics for CLNS Media and for Celtics Blog, Darius Soriano of Forum Blue and Gold, and Derek Bodner of Derek Bodner com and his awesome Patreon, and you can listen to all three of them. I'm going to have timestamps if you want to hear somebody, but I think all three conversations are worth listening to. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. You can post jobs there, you can also apply to jobs there. It makes sense to do those in the same place, depending on where you are in the process. And those who are looking to find the, their next great employee, sports sportsfan and you can post jobs for free. So the first person I'm going from one to three is Jared Weiss of CLNS Media and. Celtics blog. We talk for about a half an hour. Thanks so
2: much for coming on. Good to be here. Good to be here. Season's over, but I'm still having fun.
1: Well, that's kind of where I wanted to start just briefly is one of the big differences between the Celtics and the other two teams picking at the top of this draft is the other two teams' seasons functionally ended in like January or February, and the Celtics' season ended on... Thursday. So I don't know if that necessarily affects their planning, but I do think that they have an idea of where they need to get to if they want to win in the near term.
2: Yeah. I mean, I literally asked Brad Stevens after the uh, game, did you feel like even though you didn't make it to the championship and win the title, did you feel like you accomplished all of your objectives for the year overall? And he just, he wasn't having him. He was very simple. We don't set any, there's no objective short of winning the championship because it sets an unfair ceiling on your team and it allows your team to lose because you're not aiming for the highest points. So You know, for them, this is just like a little bit of confidence for them, but it feels like a complete failure either way, especially considering how badly it went.
1: The other big development of the last week or so is the fact that they turned the best lottery odds into the number one pick. And I've talked about it in a couple different forums since it happened. But the general take, both from myself and from a lot of other people, is that getting number one makes them less likely to trade this pick. Do you agree with that logic from your connection with everything
2: that's going on? Absolutely because there's there's nobody that is realistically on the market that I would trade the right to take Markel Fultz for. I'm very high on him and I think I'm probably in the middle ground of be of rating him I would say I mean there's people that think he is unreal and there's people that think he'll be a very good player. either way, I mean the amount of I'd say like variance in how great of a player he can be isn't really that significant.
1: He's a fascinating player because I think the ceiling is there, and I think that the, that he has a respectable four too. I don't think it's as high as, like, John Wall's necessarily, but you don't have to be better than John Wall to be worth the number one pick.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, John Wall's pretty good, and I'd rather have a guy of that caliber under control for 10 to 12 years than trying to acquire a mid-career veteran, especially a guy like Paul George whose contract situation is extremely risky. So, I mean, you know, if Anthony Davis comes into play, obviously that's someone who I would definitely consider. I don't consider Kristaps Porzingis to be someone worth trading uh, the Fultz pick for, and I don't think George would be either.
1: Team control is just such a huge part of it. And the other thing that the Celtics have, which nobody else really does other than the Sixers, is that they have another pick that's high value. So they can I think that the, this pick is, is as you said more valuable than anybody who's reasonably on the market. There are guys who who they could trade it for who like I would trade it for, but I don't think they're available. But they can go to the Bulls, let's say, with Jimmy Butler and say, we're not going to trade you the number one pick. But the Nets look like they're going to be bad again, and we have their pick unprotected next year. That can be a part of the package. It's not going to be the whole thing. And they would still have the best offer on the table. So they don't. this doesn't foreclose the possibility of adding a great player via trade.
2: I think they're, that's what's so remarkable, remarkable about this, is that pick next year plus a couple of their core starting wings – it's probably enough to make an acquisition for a guy like Butler and maybe even George. If George is really going to apply the pressure and turn the screws on Indiana, they always have the ability to also offer Jalen Brown. They obviously really love Jalen Brown. He would be a reasonable price to pay to get one of those guys, but they would, you know, I think Jay Crowder with his great contract has suddenly become. Uh, I think they're much more happy to part or, or willing to part with him because, frankly, his defense just was not at the same level this year. And it certainly wasn't in the series that they just got killed in. Uh He was there was never really a point in the series in which he was really effective on LeBron and a lot of the strides that he made early in the year we didn't really offensively we didn't really see them come to fruition very much during the series he had a it's a few really good shooting games but he isn't really attacking closeouts consistently he isn't really showing the ability to create off the dribble that he was showing right when the season was starting so i think at this point they would obviously much rather build up Jalen Brown than keep Jay Crowder for this really valuable contract, even though the contract is still very valuable at its price.
1: Right. And Crowder, I think something that has changed over the last year or so is the idea of him being like a great player versus him being a great contract. Like he's still very useful, but he is not at the point where it's, where I think a lot of the discussion on him is, wow, he's, he has such a wonderful contract. I mean, he has three more years, I believe on that salary, which is completely ridiculous, but I'm not sitting there going, oh, my God, he's like a definite, like an all-star or anything crazy like that. He's just, he's a good player on an amazing contract. And that is something entirely different.
2: I mean, I don't think he was better this year than last year. In fact, I think in some ways he wasn't as good as he was last year. I thought his defensive f- uh, his defensive effectiveness was just way better last season. So that's, that's really what you're looking for him. I mean, if he makes strides on offense, it's great. But, like, they need him to be an incredibly disruptive defender, an incredibly versatile defender. And they didn't get that out of him on a consistent basis in the playoffs. And that's why that's I mean, that's why I don't think his contract value really matters that much anymore. Not to mention, despite all of the connections that people have made about him and Jimmy Butler being Marquette guys and stuff like that. They are not going to play on the same team. So if you're training for Jimmy Butler, you have to send Jay Crowder out the other way. They're not they're not they're not close is I guess how I would put it.
1: They also duplicate each other too much. you know like it kind of the idea of that doesn't mean that necessarily that Jay Crowder has to be in that trade specifically. but I do think that you want Jay Crowder you don't need both of those guys on the same team. Jay Crowder's a starting caliber guy. And you need more shot creation. They're just, I, I don't think he helps you nearly as much. And also consider that some of the other players that they could get, you know, the idea is kind of you sign somebody and then you trade for Jimmy Butler. Some of those other players, Gordon Hayward being the most obvious, they would add another wing to this mix.
2: Yeah, it's like as far as uh, Crowder and Butler are concerned, I think they're almost completely duplicative in their abilities. I think Crowder, uh, or I think Butler, could probably guard fours, maybe not as well as Crowder can, but I think he could do it if he had to. And I think him and Hayward could complement each other very, very nicely. So if they're able to pull that off, that is incredible. As long as they're holding on to Fultz and they're holding on to Jalen Brown, they have. I mean the the two phase development for this team is like almost Spursian if they can pull it off.
1: And the two phase part of this is, is something that is a real point of interest because there is a, a, a conversation that has been going on more kind of in my circles that I think is different from the national media, which is kind of the idea of Isaiah Thomas's next contract. Mm-hmm. I know you've heard some of that because you listen, you listen to some, you listen to some of my material How do you feel about it and what do you – from what you know, what is your feel for how the Celtics approach the idea of giving Isaiah Thomas a big deal because he's never had one before?
2: Yeah, so I, I think most of your analysis has been pretty spot on and then something that came out of exit meetings on Friday was that Isaiah said that he actually has a physical anomaly or deformation in his hip that meant that this injury that he suffered was something that was always anticipated to happen at some point and then they would have to correct it was probably with surgery. Although he still he says, well surgery is the number one option at this point. It's really, it really is going to take a reassessment, uh, with an MRI once the swelling goes down in his tear, which will take, I guess, several weeks, if not another month and a half or so. But that's something that I would not have admitted if I were Isaiah Thomas publicly, because even though obviously the Celtics already know all of this information, this information getting out to the rest of the market, means that he doesn't have as much leverage to push the Celtics to pay him as much and you know, technically he is negotiating his value against the rest of the league relative to the Celtics. So, you know, if there's so I know Chris Mannix had something earlier in the year uh, about Isaiah being willing to take something in more of the twenty to twenty five million dollar range as opposed to the thirty to thirty-five range in order for them to build out this complete team. Um, he's already been pretty fine with them paying al for the max while he's making six and a half million because he knows that there's a Brinks truck waiting for him somewhere the difference between like 35 million and 25 million a year is a lot but if he has this complete team then i think it's i think he's Pretty comfortable doing that because, you know, he's still going to make a $100 million and he'll still be able to buy himself his own small island nation if he wants to. That won't be an issue for him. I think for him, it's can the Celtics prove to him that they can show him the respect that he deserves being. It's not just that. He's someone that may not be as talented overall or as well rounded overall as the other stars that they're trying to bring in. But like, he was the one that carried this team up and built this team up. And there's, you know, there's the loyalty aspect of it that he wants to see. And, you know, obviously the Celtics have given him an opportunity to succeed and to put him in the position to succeed that the other places he's been in hasn't done. And I think he's pretty aware that leaving here would be – or leaving Boston would be kind of like a big risk and that he's also just really happy in Boston. There's not really much incentive for him to leave as long as he's getting paid enough. And then from the flip side of that coin is basically how well can his game age – How well can he come back from this injury? Because, you know, if you're if he's having surgery, it's pretty hard to imagine him playing at the same level that he was playing at his peak this year, coming off of surgery in that first year. It's probably going to take another year for that to happen, but he's only got one year between the point where he can sign an extension this offseason and then he hits free agency. You know, extending him now and him getting paid more this season, if they're able to renegotiate that, which I'm pretty sure they're allowed to. That would at least make up for a lot of the money that could be lost if he takes a cheaper contract. So if they're able to make all the acquisitions they want during the summer, that seems like the optimal pathway, assuming they're confident in his health. But if they're left kind of you know hanging at the altar with a lot of these trades, and then, or they're not able to get Gordon Hayward to sign, which is certainly not a guaranteed proposition, it's far from it. Then committing that money to him means making another move with that Brooklyn pick next year at the trade deadline is extremely complicated
1: speaking of complicated the other elephant in the room now is that the assumption is that if they keep their pick this year which we both expect that they're going to drop somebody who plays the same position and so do you want to commit the kind of money that it's going to take to keep isaiah thomas to build in that kind of respect whether it's the max or less than that when you have another guy who you think is going to be great who is under cost control for four seasons and then is on team control for another whatever, you know, three, four five, depending on what, what you end up doing. And I can understand why that would make Danny H uncomfortable, because you're you're hedging your own bet in a way that is hard for team building purposes.
2: Well, I mean, as far as the fit with Thomas and Fultz on the court, I don't think there's any concern there. I mean, considering Fultz's size, well, there's,
1: there's concern defensively because Fultz is big but he's not good defensively. He and that's what I was later. about.
2: To, that was what I was about to say is considering Fultz's size you would expect if he can develop defensively then there won't be an issue managing, you know, not I mean Avery Bradley's 6 foot 2, right? So it's like the size for their for their second uh, guard defender isn't going to be that much of a change. But yeah, it's like Fultz has I feel like he has like the template to be a really good defender. But the issue that I've been hearing from uh from front offices on him right now is the need to kind of develop that more edgy physical aspect to his game. I mean we're seeing the photos of him blowing up like he's Mark McGuire right now on uh popping up on Instagram, but he needs to play with a level of physical intensity that he hasn't played before. And that, you know, the kind of like smooth coasting style that he plays with is like, it's beautiful. And, you know, we see James Harden has been able to kind of find that balance between playing like that, but also being very physically imposing. And that's like kind of the big thing where he needs to get to. But I think he has... The, I think he has the tools and the and the mental tools and physical tools to develop the capability to be a really good defender. I wouldn't expect him to be like an Avery Bradley level defender, but he could still be very good and maybe try to become something like a Jimmy Butler type player. But like, yeah, that that would be a short term issue if they had to like move Avery Bradley to make these moves, and then you have Fultz in there defending next Isaiah Thomas.
1: You touched on it but i think the biggest issue that fultz has and it's hard to fix though it can be fixed is that he doesn't play defense with force and normally when you see a guy struggle if it's that if that's the cause you don't really see it get better sometimes if a guy plays hard and he you know just makes mistakes and mental mistakes or he's not strong enough or something like that then it can work and i'm always optimistic when a player is as young as fultz is but that's concerning. And a guy who it reminds me of is Kyrie. Like Kyrie has had his moments defensively, certainly, but he's still not good game to game. So like, I, I th- and, and that hasn't changed. And while Fultz in terms of physical strength is, you know, he, he could be better than Kyrie in that way. I'm not sure the quickness is something I'm going to need to watch a lot more film on to compare those two guys, but especially with point guards, because they have to fight over screens and their life defensively kind of sucks. I think that you always want to take what they battle through and what they don't battle through and just kind of file that away as a being a potential thing to keep an eye on.
2: Yeah, and actually, I I think getting through screens is going to be like the place where Fultz just struggles immensely getting, you know, coming into the league. I don't think he's going to be ready for how unbelievably difficult it is to get around like a Tristan Thompson screen or something like that. He's going to get knocked out of plays really often, and he's going to have to learn how to fight his way back into plays and then read how to switch and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's going to be a major growing pain for him, way more than like learning how to shoot in rhythm against NBA defenses.
1: So something that Nate and I discussed on Dunked On earlier in the week, and I know I, we, we talked a little bit about before we went on the air, is the idea of what happens if Gordon Hayward says no? Because he is, to me, the clear-cut guy because he he bridges the gap between being a win-now team and being a win-later team. How do he, you feel about any of the other options that are there?
2: Yeah, and like, and Hayward fits. I think what they like, what they need, also really well too. So that would really suck if they don't get him. And then yeah, so like Blake Griffin is the is the obvious debate. And you guys, I thought had a great debate on that. And I lean more towards Nate's opinion that Griffin could, because of the way that they play defense, could fit in actually very well with this team. For me, my apprehension with Griffin is about his health. Really, it's not about his fit. I like, at at this point, he's suffered so many injuries that, and they've been so many different injuries that I'm not worried about, like, he has that one major injury flaw that could take him down. It's just like, I'm more worried about just the way he's always played and then maybe just his, like, his body's composition that he doesn't hold up. And if you're if you're committing a four or three you know three and one where he has the option on that last year, he could look like an old man pretty quickly here if he continues to get hurt. And that's when we're like obviously we can't tell from the outside without being able to actually do a medical assessment of him what that actual like what the actual future holds for him there, but. I feel like his medical red flag is the biggest concern for me more than anything, which would make me extremely scared to commit to him.
1: I share the medical thing. Nate and I didn't talk about it as much, but yeah, that's a huge part of it for me. Blake Griffin hasn't played more than 67 games any of the last three seasons in the regular season, and he has gotten knocked out of each of their last two playoffs early and has played a significant part in that. And while there are a lot of the injuries he's had, you don't sit there and go, oh, that's going to be a recurring thing. It's not like you're sitting there going, "Okay, you know, his knee is a ticking time bomb or anything like that, which is good. Like, that's a lot better. But you reach a certain point where you say, "Okay, we're going to be a team that focuses on, you know, winning championships. Are we sure that we're going to have him for 25 games from April to late June? I don't think I could answer that with a comfortable yes, knowing what we know right now.
2: And I don't think the reward, the risk reward there, I don't think the reward outweighs the risk at all. Like, I don't think they would be good. Like, I don't think Blake Griffin is better than Paul George. Or Jimmy Butler to the extent that he would be the guy that would put them over the top and make them a significant NBA title competitor. I still, I still don't think they're a significant NBA title competitor as long as this Warriors team is in place and we'll see what happens with Cleveland in the finals. But I, I Cleveland's looking like they're unbelievably good as well and pretty much unstoppable as well. So I just don't see taking that risk on a long-term deal with Griffin as enough of a risk-reward proposition to to do it, because if it fails and he's hurt this entire time, it just about ruins everything that they're planning. At least for the next four years, I should say. I mean, they have the talent to still be great eight years from now.
1: Along those same lines, I also worry, even if he's healthy, about how his game is going to age. Because, yeah, he did better this year defensively when they were switching, but Griffin is 28. He'll play the whole next season until the playoffs, pretty much, at twenty eight. But his game is not where it was a couple of years ago, where it was so reliant on athleticism. He has a lot of skill. He's a nice passer for his size. He's gotten better defensively. But I worry a lot about those guys as they age, too, because if he loses a half a step or a full step in the next couple of years, even if he's healthy then that becomes somebody who has much less of a tactical advantage than he has right now.
2: Also, he's kind of like very slowly turning into a similar player to what Al Horford is, where like he's kind of turning into more of a of a careful point forward who can still be explosive when he needs to. But I'm not sure that they have the off like unless he becomes like a consistent knockdown three point shooter, which I don't think he is right now, although he's obviously improved, but They they don't have a ton of offensive diversity if they're putting him next to Horford. And obviously there's concerns about their rebounding and their ability to uh, protect the paint there. So, I don't, I don't necessarily, well, like, obviously, I think having Griffin is better than, like, having, like, Danilo Gallinari if they wanted to throw their money that direction. And frankly, Gallinari presents all the same injury concerns as well. So, like, I would definitely rather go with Griffin, but I don't think it would provide them that missing, like, what they're missing as much as it would kind of just give them Another great option, and they still wouldn't be kind of like that complete team in the way that Golden State and Cleveland are.
1: For reference, with Griffin, he's shooting about thirty-three percent from three now, which is good. You know, but uh, the other issue though is volume. So this was the first year that he ever attempted more than three point five percent of his shots from three. He was all the way up to eleven point six, which is you know that's that's sizable for a guy like him. It's not for some of the other fours that are out there in the world, but. That's almost half as many as he as as he attempts in kind of the paint range from three to ten feet. And so you think about kind of where his role is and where his fit is. And that's why I worry a little bit about the Celtics, because if you want to pair him with Isaiah, Isaiah, part of how he thrives is getting to the lane. And I thought that the Celtics have done well when they've spaced the four because it just gives him a little bit more room to work. And while Isaiah is crafty as all get out... It just gets harder the less real estate he has to work with.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that. But the thing is, I think Griffin can work like the other side of the floor as like an alley-oop presence or something like that, that it would probably, they would probably be able to manage that pretty fine. The question would basically be when teams are defending that really well, can they then go back to being five out? And that's how they usually play. They love playing five out. It works really well for them. Griffin's change last year was like before that. When he was at the three point line, he would basically be like looking around to see if they're closing out on him, and then if they're not, he'll slowly pull up for a shot. While last year he became a little bit more of a rhythm shooter. But when you see the way that Horford works with Isaiah, they run like pick and pops so, so perfectly, and he shoots comfortably in rhythm. There's not a delay there. Like he is what looks like a like a really kind of competent shooting big man. While I think Griffin, he's like he's basically forcing himself into being that player, but it still to me does look natural to him.
1: I agree with that. And then the other huge difference between those two guys is that while Al Horford is not perfect as a rim protector, he's worlds better than Griffin. So if you want to go to some of those five out systems, I don't think you feel comfortable with Griffin playing center unless it's against backups or something like that.
2: Which, why would you get Blake Griffin if you're only comfortable using him at center against backups, right?
1: I agree with you. I think that's not his best role moving forward. But the other kind of part of this that I wanted to ask you about, because it's something that's a lot easier to discuss in the abstract is the idea that if Boston decided that they wanted to go more this long-term route, whether they decided that today or in July, if Gordon Hayward and maybe even Blake Griffin and whoever else decide, I want to go somewhere else, which is certainly possible. Would you be willing to trade Isaiah just because, of, because you're not going to really use him as much in that way? Or would you just keep him and see where it goes?
2: I would keep him. I think he's proven his unbelievable value at this point. That it wouldn't make sense to trade him like, for, uh, for, I mean, dimes on the dollar. I mean, like, unless there's, unless there's some great trade out there, it, how often has it ever worked out where a star player was trade, traded for declining value and that team was better off? It, it's extremely rare that that ever really works. Obviously, they're in a unique position where they could clear out their current roster and still build up a great roster either way, but they're, I mean, they're in a position to be able to hold on to Isaiah. And not be desperate for cap room to be able to continue to build up their team. So I just don't see any reason to clear him out at this point, especially when there's other guys from like a cap perspective that they could be much more comfortable moving on from. So I think the only benefit of moving Isaiah Thomas would be to get a great perimeter, like a great wing player and then give Fultz the ball. Otherwise, I don't really see the value in it, unless obviously it's he wants a five-year full max deal and you don't want to commit that.
1: That last point gets into the the reason I would consider it, and I wouldn't consider it necessarily right now, is – If we're sitting here in, I would say it'd be better actually to do in January than February. But if you're sitting there in January and you go, Markel Fultz is closer than we ever thought he would be. And we can be competitive, probably not going to be a title contender. but We can be competitive with him. And we are not going to sign Isaiah Thomas to his next contract. Then at that point, the value proposition changes. Because then you're sitting there going, we might as well get something. I don't think that's going to happen. I expect to do that. And the other part that makes Boston so different is, Most teams have the approach where I've talked about this with Paul George numerous times where you can't afford to let the guy leave for nothing. You can't do that. Boston can't like they're still fine if he leaves. I mean, certainly from a value standpoint, any value you can get for somebody is better than nothing. But then the other possibility, and I haven't really talked too much about this with many people, is I would see a a very real possibility of a sign in trade because Isaiah is going to want to look for the right circumstance, and at that point, the Celtics will probably have their team pretty well put together so if they could make it work and now there's going to be about a twenty million gap between the luxury tax and the salary cap, so they could trade him to a team, and that team wouldn't be totally murdered with the hard cap like the clippers were last year, like that's not going to necessarily happen so maybe in january or february you're sitting there and the and the math has changed because you have so much more knowledge about what these guys are and then at that point you say well fine
2: yeah cuz right now they're trapped with this uncertainty about like half of their roster like marcus smart who looked during the year to be really trending towards being the guy they wanted them to. And then the second half of the year just absolutely did not go that way. And the playoffs didn't go that way despite that game three. Now they're in this really, they're in this really difficult kind of like, you know, no man's land on Marcus smarts development curve. You know, obviously having faults coming in basically means they can move on from any of these guys and not be too worried about it. So if they're going to trade Isaiah Thomas, it, I would agree that it probably should happen earlier in the year. Because it would, one, it would allow them to make another move as opposed to doing it on the trade deadline. It would, it would allow them to then, you know, seeing what they get out of that, be able to then recompose their roster. And you would assume mo- pretty much any trade with Isaiah, involving Isaiah would probably mean that they're not contending for the title that year, which means that they probably want to start quickly cashing in on the rest of the veterans of whomever is left, uh, left in that roster so they can go for a full focus on building up for like 2019 and 2020 contention.
1: The other guy that looms in this that isn't the figure Isaiah is is Avery Bradley. His backcourt partner is also going to be a free agent next summer and I can see them going both ways on him. And also, I think there's a better chance with Avery Bradley just because there's more variance that he ends up being worth his next contract in a way that Isaiah it looks less likely just because he's older and he's smaller and he's going to get paid a ton. We know that no matter what.
2: Yeah. I mean, Avery's going to be 26 this year, I believe. And he is, I think he's pretty clearly proven to be a very good two way player. And he, he elevated his game so much for this team. And especially in the last round, despite how poorly things went and despite how much Kyrie Irving got, uh, got through him. I mean, he, He's shown that he can do anything that they need him to do. So if you're looking for a guy that fits into a championship team in the future, it's, I think Bradley's the kind of guy that you could probably fit into any single team while Isaiah, maybe less so. And the, you know, if Isaiah taking that hometown discount means that you're probably not the difference in how much you have to pay those two guys probably wouldn't be significant because the number I've been hearing around Avery is somewhere in the 20 to 23 million dollar range. Which, which, frankly, I think he's probably worth it, especially compared to who else has been getting numbers in the last year and then probably who's going to get it this offseason. So Bradley, I think, is a the guy they would least want to trade of between him, Crowder, and Marcus Smart. But he's probably the only one that still has pretty good trade value, even considering that he's hitting free agency. Because I know you guys are saying Smart that you, you thought he was worth like a late first-round pick, which – I guess if you compare his value to Nerland, Noel, Nerland Noel's value, that probably is pretty accurate. And at least he doesn't have the health concerns that Noel had, but I think his development is probably in a pretty similar place to where Noel is. Although I think he's proven to be uh, to be a little bit more reliable, but I think at this point they need to find like Bradley has this ability to be consistent and persistent on both ends that smart hasn't found yet. He also has been in the league a lot longer, but Smart. There's a lot of question as to whether Smart can actually do that, so that he can become a better shooter and fix his issue with his rhythm. So that because his mechanics aren't even that bad at this point, it's just his rhythm is so inconsistent that he half the time is going one for eight from the field, and he still hasn't figured out how to be a scorer because he can't jump off of one foot, and he hasn't found that composure handling the ball in the lane consistently yet. So like, there's so many big question marks with Smart that I feel like Avery Bradley has already successfully answered. And he's still young enough that you can commit to this contract and know that you're going to get great play out of him.
1: Yeah, I'm fascinated to see what his value is around the league because he provi- he he's a very good, close to elite man to man defender, and he can provide value in the offense that is not with the ball in his hands. You know, he's a he was a wonderful cutter in both the the second round and in the conference finals. He can shoot; he's comfortable shooting threes now more than he was before. So I think he can fit in, kind of bridge some of those gaps, like what we talked about with Gordon Hayward, if they use him in that way. And I think that's what makes him a better fit. But at the same point, you know, I don't think they need to, if they, if for whatever reason, the best guy that was available with that Nets pick, if they keep it. Or somebody they can acquire in a trade is is a two guard. I don't think you're sitting there going, "Well, we can't get another two guard because we have Avery Bradley." Especially if it's somebody as good as Paul George or Jimmy Butler, who can bounce between. But you get the idea.
2: Yeah, and I mean, Avery Bradley has been a really good starter for this team. But there are plenty of there are plenty of scenarios you can imagine in the NBA where Avery Bradley is the six man on a on a great championship contending team. So I think you can build a you can keep Avery Bradley and build up your roster with the idea that Bradley might be. the six-man, and I think he would probably be okay with that as long as he's getting paid enough.
1: And that's the other thing to consider and why it's always hard with unrestricted free agents is you need to just have an open dialogue with that sort of thing, because if he's not cool with that, that's okay, but you just need to know because yeah, that, I, I, you work with it.
2: Yeah, I don't think, but like Avery's doesn't have. I don't think his career goal is to be the highest paid player on a five hundred team. Like his career goal is to be one of the five guys in the starting lineup on a championship team. So I think that's one thing that they have working in their favor to be for, from a negotiating perspective is he'll be more will. I think he'll be more willing to take a discount as long as he's getting paid you know up up around the twenty area because he would be willing to sacrifice some money to play here. He's it's very obvious that that's how he feels.
1: Last question, because we've, Talked about it in a couple different ways, but it's good to just have some clarity on it. I know you prefer Markel Fultz to Lonzo Ball and whoever else is that whoever else people consider in that tier in the field. Is it your sense that the Celtics are kind of going in that way as well, or is it just it's too early in the process to say? Oh, it looks like it looks like Fultz is the guy.
2: I oh, know it's def- it definitely is that he's the significant front runner, but they're going to go through the process anyway. They're certainly letting it be known that Lonzo Ball isn't working out for them, which you know the they would like to see him, but I think they're, you know, I don't think there's any team besides the Lakers and the Knicks that would be remiss to miss out on riding the ball train. So, I mean, I don't think besides ball, I don't think there's anybody in the draft that I would really consider as a threat to Fultz uh, being the number one pick right now. You know, if Josh Jackson didn't have these concerns with his shooting ability and of course the off court stuff, you know, maybe he could get there, but It Fultz is just like it. Fultz is both a safe pick and an extremely high upside pick. It's like it's it's he's the perfect number one prospect. When this, I feel like this is the guard version when Carl Towns entered the draft. Like I think it's pretty clear that he has every tool that you could want. And the things that you want him to approve upon are like the kind of things that generally NBA players approve upon when they get to the league.
1: Do you know if there's any relationship between Isaiah and Fultz? Because while Fultz went to UW, the same school, it's not like Markel grew up in Washington State where Isaiah clearly did.
2: Yeah, Isaiah's actually been talking about it. He's uh he reached out to him a while ago, and they've been uh, they've been getting closer and closer over the last couple years. It seems so they actually do have a pretty solid relationship uh, going. At least privately, it certainly seems that way. And publicly, they've been talking a lot about how well they would play together. So that shouldn't be an issue. Uh, I'd imagine they're probably going to work out together this offseason. Although, of course, who knows what Isaiah's offseason workout is going to be like since he's probably going to be rehabbing, whether it's surgery or not. But yeah, they have. They're at least publicly trying to establish that they have a very good, positive relationship. If Danny came to Isaiah and said, "Would you rather me draft Markel Fultz or put together a package against Anthony Davis?" I think we know what the answer would be. It'd be Anthony Davis. But you know that, I think he looks at drafting Fultz as someone that he can probably play next to for the next six or seven years. So I think he feels comfortable there and someone that he feels confident is going to take a lot of burden off of him in the you know pretty soon because while Isaiah Thomas obviously loves getting to take 20, 20 25 shots a game he pretty clearly recognizes that he would benefit significantly from having somebody else that can take the ball out of his hands pretty consistently especially cuz he he's so much better off the ball as great as he is on the ball he's you know I wrote before the season started a piece about how Isaiah's game can really be unleashed if they can use him off the ball more utilizing Horford. And I got laughed down uh, for that for that piece I wrote. And uh, I will pat myself on the back for one thing there because that turned out to be uh, pretty accurate. They really unleashed him. And that was the only thing that they could really work with him with against Cleveland and really in the, in the uh, second round as well. It was really hard for him to get decent shots off without DHO actions off the ball
1: that's a real possibility with him and that's also part of the reason why Gordon Hayward's a good fit and why that part of it is why Blake Griffin would be interesting is cuz you can use Isaiah in all those different ways and he can thrive at both on and off the ball and that's part of why he's just such a nasty cover now in a way that he wasn't earlier in his career
2: yeah and i think Isaiah knows if he wants to stretch out his career at his size and like you know one of the few one of the few things that makes his size an actual challenge for him is shooting over you know double teams and getting over double teams and then the falls that he takes because he to to be able to get off the shots he gets off in the paint he needs to completely toss his body around, which means he's going to hit the floor a lot more and that's when he's going to be developing these injuries in fact, the injury that he's dealing with now. Could be maybe even traced back to a, a groin pull he had back in uh, December. And then that was from, uh, that was from hitting the ground. And then he had another awkward fall in March that was from hitting the ground. So, like, I think he can, I think he knows that he needs to start adjusting his game the way, kind of in the way that Iverson had to and Wade had to, is another guy that hit the ground a ton. So he knows that having another guy that will handle the ball and allow him to just kind of run around for, uh, off, off ball stuff. And be able to shoot with more space consistently and stuff like that. That's gonna, that's gonna allow his career to go longer and longer. And he has to be realistic at some point. He has an unrelenting confidence in himself. Every time someone tries to knock the chip off of his shoulder by praising it, he will find something to put it back on there. And that's great, but he has to, he has to be realistic at some point. And I think he has, he he plays on a team with a coaching staff and management staff that knows how to be both incredibly optimistic and also pragmatic at the same time.
1: Is there anything else you feel like we need to discuss? Obviously, we could do hours and hours on the Celtics offseason, but is there anything big that we missed?
2: I mean, I got 20 hours left, but you know, we didn't even get to talk about uh, Yabusele and managing the, uh, the the max slot if they're able to, if, if they even have to. I'll just quickly say that what I have heard is that while Yabusele probably could be brought over in most situations, that you know, part of the reason why they draft him in the first place is that... Not only would he be willing to stash one year, but probably even two. And if they're able to stash him again this year, that would give them enough clearance to make it a little bit easier for them to clear out that space for that max contract slot. So you know they would have to let go of all their free agents, and then if they were able to stash Yabusele, they would be able to not have to trade uh, Avery Bradley or Marcus Smart. And instead just trade Terry Rogier. So, I mean, while Rogier is under contract for longer, he obviously isn't nearly as developed as those guys. It can allow them to kick the can on picking between Smarter Bradley or, you know, whatever they end up wanting to d- deal with there. But stashing Yabu should allow them to have just enough room to give what is essentially a max contract offer to Hayward or Griffin or whomever.
1: Good to know. Well, thank you so much for taking the time.
2: It's been great, man.
1: Thanks again to Jared Weiss of CLNS Media and Celtics Blog. You can also check him out on the Garden Report Post Game Show, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA J A R E D W E I S S NBA. And before we move on to the Lakers and Darius Soriano, I want to tell you a little bit about ZipRecruiter. As you all know, it's playoff season, almost NBA finals, and having the right players on the court is a key to success. And business really isn't any different. Your company needs the right people in order to be the best. And a challenge for anybody really at any level in business is how to find the right talent. For a long time, it has been hard to know exactly where to look and also the issue of time. And so what ZipRecruiter does is it post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click, and then that's a big first part. What I really like about ZipRecruiter is then it makes it a lot easier to filter through those people. You can screen them right on the site, and 80% of jobs... posted on ZipRecruiter, you can get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. So you don't have to worry about juggling emails, calls to the office. You you can screen, rate, and manage everybody all within their dashboard. So that's really cool. You can do it all through one place. And you can find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes nationwide. You can really pinpoint if you need people in a specific place, you can do that as well. If you want to check it out for yourself, you can go to ZipRecruiter.com sportsfan and you can post jobs for free. I personally use ZipRecruiter as a potential employee, but I can imagine how much you can provide as an employer because you can filter through people, which is sadly not something you usually need to do when you're looking for jobs. And then again, it's ZipRecruiter.com sportsfan. You can try it out for yourself and I think you'll really be impressed with the product that they have. Next up is the Lakers and Darius Soriano, who runs Forum Blue and Gold, we talked for about thirty-five minutes on where the Lakers are, where they're going, and of course how the number two pick in the draft fits into it. Hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Oh, thanks, thanks. Anytime, Danny. You know I, I uh, love talking to you. Another smart basketball mind. So yeah, let's 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 jump in.
1: The place that I like to start with this, even though we're going to focus more on what is to come, is looking back a little bit. And so what from the 2016-17 season do you think is is most important or most interesting as the Lakers move forward?
0: Um, I think it was sort of just, just getting more data on their young players. I thought that Julius Randle took a nice step forward, even though he was a bit inconsistent with his overall sort of energy level from night to night that consistency just wasn't there and Luke Walton talked talked about that a fair amount but he but he started to flash a little bit more of the all-around game that he was known for heading into Kentucky so um you know he was hitting his mid-range jumper at at a higher percentage even though it was a low volume he started finishing better around the rim and he continued to sort of uh Add to his uh, floor game as, as a grab and go player. And, you know, he notched a few triple doubles this past year. So, so all of that was nice to see with Randall, with Russell. Definitely some consistency issues as well. But I, personally, I saw strides made from him as, as a defensive player. His decision making to me was a lot better. Uh, over the course of the full season there was obviously some some ups and downs there and and he has some some turnover issues but but I especially liked the reads that he was making out of the pick and roll and in the second half of the year when they moved him off of the ball he he sort of got back some of the aggression um, as a scorer that I'd like to see that he that he had coming out of the draft from from Ohio State and and just the general sort of progression that Brandon Ingram showed throughout the year I thought that by the end of the year he was he was pretty impressive to me and so I think with those three guys specifically the Lakers um have some nice building blocks, and then you've got sort of those ancillary players like Larry Nance and Ivica Zubac and Jordan Clarkson. And those guys, too, are showing that they can at least be rotation players. So so I think that if nothing else, you know, from from a pretty bad season from a win-loss standpoint, I think that they've got a better idea of what they have now with these guys, which should inform how they draft, I think.
1: Information was the most important thing that the Lakers could get this year. It wasn't wins or anything like that. And I I think that, however it turns out, they got that information. And so it'll be fascinating to see how they interpret it, because we get a lot of it through the games. But then, of course, practices, film sessions, everything else, they can see a lot more of what these players are and also doing that with a new head coach means that they will have this together, even with the changes in the front office, I still think they have enough that they can make intelligent, active decisions moving forward, whatever those are.
0: Yeah, it's the whole changeover with the front office and and all of that. That was obviously a major subplot to, to the entire season and we'll see what sort of the new blood thinks whenever there's there's that type of change with management there's this idea that um it's easy to sort of get rid of remnants of the, of the previous regime right like oh well this isn't my head coach or these weren't my draft picks but the lakers haven't had this quality of draft picks really historically in back to back to back years, you know, they chose in the lottery for three straight years and now this will be their fourth straight lottery. And Luke Walton was just hired and he's sort of a Laker blue blood, right? And, and so I think it'll be interesting to see the stamp that Magic Johnson and Rob Palinka put on the team moving forward, considering that it looks like they're going to, um, to move forward with, um, multiple pieces that they've inherited from the previous regime
1: and this is a different type of changeover because at least magic it seems like he was kind of he wasn't a voice in the room necessarily but he has a presence is that probably a fair way to put it before this
0: yeah you you, so he had apparently um he was sort of this honorary vice president for several years. And then he sort of got hit with that tampering charge where he started to talk about players that the Lakers should sign in free agency before the season was over. And the Lakers got dinged from the league for that. And and, and so after that, he sort of gave up that title. But based off how quickly he was named as the vice president, after he was brought on as a consultant and the fact that he was turned to as a consultant at all sort of shows that, um, the specter of him was, was always present, especially with, uh, Jeannie Buss, even if he wasn't necessarily, you know, um, having direct conversations with Mitch Kopchak and Jim Buss about players or the state of the team and, and whatnot.
1: So we can transition from that into the first big choice that this new front office is going to make, and that is the second pick in the draft. Huge success for the Lakers, not only to keep their pick because that they keep it, and also that means they don't have to give that one to Orlando, which they were going to have to do otherwise, but they moved up to two, and that means they're going to get, if they want it, a choice at a really talented point guard, presumably Markel Fultz, Lonzo Ball, or whoever else they want where where are you kind of in that process and how how are you feeling right now
0: so i'm feeling great obviously about keeping the pick just like you said um the fallout from losing the pick would have been a tough pill to swallow and would have really impacted their ability to team build in well in the next few years just because you know that's that's a major asset that they now have at their disposal either to keep or to trade or or package um so, so there's a lot of options that, that they can explore there. So from that standpoint, I'm super excited. And, and then I'm, I'm just starting to really dive in to a lot of the top prospects. Point blank, I don't watch a ton of college basketball. And then, especially in recent years, even though the Lakers have been bad, the pick protections have sort of, Allowed me to, to keep all of that at arm's length and, and I try not to dive into the top guys so that I don't get too attached, um, before I know what's going to happen with whether or not the Lakers are going to keep, keep their pick. But with that, you know, I really like Fultz. Obviously you can see why he's sort of that consensus number one pick. Ball to me is, is a fantastic prospect. I like him for a variety of reasons that go beyond just, just his, his ability as, as a passer. This idea that, that he could potentially be a culture changer. You know, I don't want to put too much stock in to that, but, but I do think that, that guys like him, he can impact the way that the rest of the team plays. And I think that his style of play does offer a lot of alignment with what Luke Walton wants to do offensively. So I think that that makes him an especially good fit just from a style standpoint. And then beyond that, um, I've started to look at Josh Jackson, who I'm a fan of. And then after that, to me, there's a bit of a drop off with the, with the players that would be available and how they fit with the roster and, and so but but those three guys that that I mentioned, I'm pretty comfortable with any of those three at number two.
1: And it's fascinating with the Lakers because they do have those particularly those three players that that you discussed earlier and D'Angelo Russell, Brandon Ingram, and Julius Randle, and they have the other support guys as well. But My opinion is that none of those guys have reached the level yet, and this is not a a huge damning criticism of them, have reached the level yet where basically they're untouchable. And also the way that these guys fit in is that you could make a reasonable argument that if you drafted Markel Fultz, it wouldn't necessarily conflict with, with Russell. I mean, I think that it wouldn't work perfectly, but you can go through it. And there's a level of kind of accessibility that I think works well with this Lakers roster that... They can just take the best player available and not worry about whatever can come from that.
0: Oh no, I definitely agree. The good thing that I think we're seeing with the, with the talent that the Lakers have with Randall, Russell, and Ingram is that there's a fair amount of positional flexibility with them. You know, I think Russell can play point guard or, or he can play shooting guard. Randall probably plays Anywhere between two thirds and three quarters of of his minutes at power forward, but he also played a fair amount of center this season. Luke Walton did a lot of experimenting with Brandon Ingram this year. He played he played some obviously small forward where where he started games the the, the second half of the year, but he also played some point guard on the second unit. He played some power forward. In small ball lineups, and he even played some shooting guard with well with lineups where the Lakers played um traditional three four five, and then slotted Ingram next to like a guy like Jordan Clarkson or a uh, well, well, or D'Angelo Russell. So so with that, I think that you can make a case that any of the top three guys could could slide in and slide in right away from. For minutes and not necessarily eat in to too many minutes of of any of the other quote unquote um, same position players that are already on the roster.
1: From what you've seen so far, is there a single position where you feel most comfortable with Brandon Ingram defensively? I, I, it's, I've it's i watched a fair amount of the Lakers and I could never really figure it out. Like, oh, is he better guarding threes? Is he better? I mean, he's a little bit thin right now to guard fours, but second unit wise, he can do it. And then the other spots, it's it, it's fascinating with him.
0: Yeah. I see him defending wings most comfortably now. I think it's In some ways, a lot of wings try to get into his body because, you know, he is thin and and he doesn't yet have a ton of strength, but he actually did well by using his length and and starting to figure out during the second half of the season, like, like how he could leverage some of the physical tools that he does have, even though he's not the strongest guy and, and didn't necessarily have the ballast to, to anchor like in, in a uh, straight post-ups. But he did have several good sort of defensive possessions against, um, power wings who would try to take him down to uh, the low block. And, and he's more than comfortable banging with guys. It's just that, like I said, he doesn't yet have the frame to, to, to hold up in there for for too many of those um hard blows right when when a when a stronger guy is Is backing you down but guys would try to turn into him and shoot over the top and and he was contesting those great because you know he's got like a standing reach of over nine feet so he really does have almost like center proportions as a small forward and I think that as he grows in strength and gets more experience that that means that he's going to be able to guard multiple multiple positions and and down the line I do see him being able to defend probably two through four fairly effectively
1: what i'm excited about with ingram and we didn't see a ton of it this year because just not really the role he had would be what he can do as a weak side shop locker because he's so long and his instincts are they're solid you know i i don't i don't think he's you know like the a savant defensively but he moves well for his size so that is a role that i think durant has gotten a little bit better at over the last couple of years and at least in terms of body type defensively that's a fair analog for him and so you kind of want, if you want a guy to do that weak side stuff, you pretty much want them guarding fours, because if they're guarding threes, they're just going to be hanging out on the perimeter. That's where the league is right now. But what I like about Ingram is that isn't all he has to do. That It's more of a surplus value thing than where his entire value lies.
0: Yeah, I think so. One of the guys that I've actually compared Ingram to is Andre Karolinko, which is another one of those guys who in today's league would probably be a full-time four, but but during his Well, the era that that he played in, he was more, you know, more small forward and then could slide up in certain lineups. And then what would even guard like prime shoe shooting guards like Kobe Bryant and guys like that during his like really peak defensive prime. I could definitely see him developing that that weak side shot blocking. I also think if he does play End up playing a lot of small forward. That his length and stride is really going to help him in being able to to tag roll men in the pick and roll, and then recover back out to the three point line with good um, closeouts to either contest or run guys off of the line uh, to turn those you know corner threes into you know short corner two pointers instead. And there's a great amount of value in that as well, especially. In with the direction the league is going in.
1: One more Ingram question, just because I feel like you know this way better than I do. In college at Duke, he shot 41% from three. Or in the NBA, he shot about 30%. How do you feel about his jump shot moving forward?
0: I feel pretty comfortable with it. In the second half of the year, he started to hit a lot more um, pull-up jumpers off of the dribble that were mostly long twos. I feel like... He seems to be a much more off the dribble shooter to me at this stage rather than a spot up guy, which is, which is kind of the opposite of where I thought he would be because a lot of the success that he had at Duke was just like you said, he was playing a lot of power forward there, which meant that it was like more driving kicks or, or ball rotation three pointers for him where, where it, it seemed like they were more spot up options. So I think that that long term, his jumper is going going to be fine. Do I think that he's ever going to shoot like Kevin Durant or anything like that? No, I don't. I think that he can be, you know, a 35 to 37% three-point shooter and that's fine to me even as a small forward and like that would be to me excellent as 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 a power forward and if he can start And on those catch-and-shoot sort of wide, wide wide-open jumpers, if he can, you know, be around 40%, then I think that that's, that's probably ideal. Whether he gets there or not, I'm not sure. But I think he's got enough of a varied offensive repertoire, or at least I see him developing that, that the three-point shooting will be good enough to open up the rest of his game, especially his ability to attack closeouts, which if he's shooting 35 to 37%, guys are going to close out on him, and that means that it's going to open up his sort of one dribble or two dribble drives to the rim where where he can get there, and he's going to be able to finish over the top and and in time finish through contact as well.
1: Yeah, that's the first threshold. The first threshold is guys close out, then you can reach that second level, which I sincerely doubt he ever will just because very few guys ever do, which is that they never leave you to be able to close out in the first place. But if you can reach that first level, then you can be a positive offensive player in a lot of different ways because it changes the way the defense has to deal with you. And it also opens up more real estate for everyone else. And if you can dribble, if you can do that two dribbles in a good decision, whether that's with his long loping stride getting to the basket or whether that's making a pass or hitting a jump shot, he can can be very talented if he can reach that level.
0: Yeah, I also think, too, that... Because he's a good enough, so he's already shown that he's a good enough ball handler to be an NBA wing. I think his handle's only going to get tighter, and he's already shown to me that he can be a plus passer, um, both as just a standard sort of ball mover, but also making more advanced reads, especially out of the pick and roll. And, and and so down the line i actually see him being able to create offense for himself and others out out of the screen and roll as well which is which impacts to me what kind of players the lakers can draft because if ingram is going to de- to develop sort of that complete floor game of an nba wing then i think that that allows the lakers to, to draft a myriad types of guy at number two and end up not necessarily having to worry about that guy being like a high usage or, or really like ball dominant offensive creator because assuming that they have Russell still and then Ingram develops in to that type of guy and then randall has already shown that that he can be an offensive creator from from the power forward position then it may be that you don't necessarily need your point guard to be one of those like shake off of the dribble create out out of pick and roll guys because you may be able to get that from other guys on your roster
1: and that ties in intriguingly with Lonzo Ball somebody that I'm more familiar with than most guys because he went to the he went to the school I went to and I watched a lot of their a lot of their play this year which was fun and Lonzo I think his ability on ball might be a little bit overrated just because I'm not sure how much separation he can generate at the next level because NBA defenders are so good But that ties in with what you were just saying about on ball, off ball, because Lonzo, he'll get the space to shoot his shot if he's doing, if he's playing off ball a little bit more. And he's such a fast reactor and good passer that he could actually work really well in that kind of a context where he probably has the ball in his hands a lot in transition. But in the half court sets, you know, you use him, he's incorporated in your offense, but he's not that Chris Paul, Isaiah Thomas, ball dominant one.
0: So here's the thing, too, is that one of the things that the Lakers love to do with their um, offensive initiation is have the player who brings up the ball. Th- the Lakers would run a lot of off ball action for their shooting guard or small forward to sort of come and make a catch and then flow into secondary reads with the quote unquote point guard or player who brought the ball up the court. Passing and then setting, you know, like a weak side action, like sort of out, out of horn sets or something like that, and and then spot spotting up either in the uh, strong side or weak side corner, and I think that that's something that Ball can do very well, especially because as a half court player, he is such a good passer in terms of really delivering the ball on time and on target to shooters right in their shooting pocket. And and I think that that's really going to benefit a guy like Brandon Ingram, you know, working off of pin downs or, or, or D'Angelo Russell in like floppy sets and, and things that the Lakers actually do and can run where they now can leverage um, another player's passing when realistically last season, the only two players who could really do that were Ingram and Russell, and Russell was really, besides Lou Williams, their best, and well, and Nick Young was their best three point shooter, especially at, at at a volume rate, and. and 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 so if the Lakers could find a way to sort of move Russell off of the ball more to set up his shooting opportunities and then still leverage his pick-and-roll play as a passer and have the guy who would be setting Russell up in those um, half-court passes— Could then move off of the ball so that Russell could then leverage him as an outside shooter. I think that that's going to be a nice pairing. And that's one of the reasons why I see ball as being such a, a good offensive fit, because him and Russell's games really can complement each other well within within the system that that Luke Walton's been running.
1: Ball also makes sense for them in terms of the idea of flexibility of game with Ingram. So you can play those guys with a lot of different other supporting pieces. And so then if you decide, and I'm not saying they will, that D'Angelo Russell isn't a perfect fit at, at point guard, you can go for a lot of other different things to make that system work. And that versatility is really valuable because the Lakers at this point have no idea what their opportunities for the next good player are going to be. You know, maybe it's Paul George a year from, year from now, maybe it's somebody else in free agency, maybe it's somebody else not in the draft next year, but in the draft the year after that, you know. You'll want to be ready to take in talent however it comes, and I like that there's a possibility that they can really do that.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that that's true of, of a guy like Ball, and to a certain extent, I also think it's true of a guy like Jackson, Jackson's more of like a pure wing even though he played a lot of power forward at Kansas. Like I did listen to the conversation that that you and um Nate had for dunked on when when you guys sort of, sort of broke down Jackson's game. I think I'm a little bit higher on him than maybe the nature of the discussion that that you guys were having, but I see Jackson being able to um to defend multiple positions. I see him being able to play on on or off the ball in a variety of ways. He may never end up being sort of that 18 to 20 point score that you might expect from a player drafted, you know, like in the top five as a wing. But I think that smart teams are going to be able to leverage the things that he does well, and he's going to be able to get enough baskets based off of his... um developing off the dribble shooting and his ability as as a cutter the fact that he's got such good body control as a driver and sort of the effectiveness that he's exhibited in transition that there's a lot of different ways that that he can help in offense and I think a smart team can, can leverage that in a variety of ways. And, and, and so if the Lakers were to go Jackson as well, I do think that, that it does still give them that opportunity to, to add talent at a variety of positions and still be able to, um, to proceed forward with the core that they have intact.
1: It's certainly a possibility. I'm a little bit, I, I'm a little bit skeptical just because of his jump shot, but I t- certainly see why other people really like him. And this isn't really a question, it's more just something that intru- intrigued me when I was kind of doing the prep for this. I hadn't even noticed beforehand that D'Angelo Russell ended up shooting basically the exact same percentage from three and from two last year and this year. That's just super weird. It's <laughs> yeah. almost identical. He shot 44.7% from two both years and 35.1% and 35.2% from three in in his two seasons.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and so one of the things that happened with Russell last year is that he, he missed an inordinate amount of like floaters and runners and like sort of these these like little pull-up shots like in well, well in that 10-foot range that that really seemed like shots that would be in his wheelhouse and they just didn't fall. It wasn't necessarily either because that he was, you know, had like a big man bearing down on him or 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 anything like that. Just a lot of them just sort of spun out or missed short. Um and maybe that was because you know he dealt with knee issues last year, and maybe he wasn't physically all the way right for for a good portion of the season. But and and, and so I think that that helps explain sort sort of the the um, two point shooting, and then from three point shooting, he just took an inordinate amount of off the dribble threes that that based off of his percentages. Probably were not good shots. So he shot off the dribble really well when, when he was in college, but that has not necessarily translated yet to the pro level, especially when guys go under screens, I think he, he settles too much for, for the three pointer rather than maybe pulling it back and, and running rescreen actions. And so part of that to me is just sort of that decision making that comes with being a really young point guard, like in the NBA, especially when you consider that he's not necessarily the most natural point guard. He hasn't necessarily played there his entire life the way that, you know, like a Chris Paul did, right? Where he's just been a point guard, his, well, his entire life. And so, especially with, with Russell, I think that, you know, in the next year or so, the light is going to start to come on for him in terms of these past shot decisions and how to run an offense. And even if he's moved off of the ball more, I think that that experience is still going to come. And, and it's one of the reasons why I remain incredibly high on Russell, even though I know that others don't necessarily see it that way.
1: He also has an unusual profile that almost exactly even, his catch and shoot threes and pull up threes were almost exactly even generally catch a catch and shooter better. But, you know, pull up, he shot about 33%. That's not terrible off the top of my head. But I'm intrigued to see what he can be moving forward. But we can move on. The last kind of topic I wanted to hit was more of a broad scope thing in terms of how they approach the other part of this, which is basically everything after the draft. And last year, the Lakers spent money. Doesn't seem like it worked out super well, but they do have money they could theoretically spend this year. What are you feeling in terms of how they should approach that? And is this the right time if they wanted to start kind of thinking about moving some of their existing salary, or should they wait on trying to move Deng or trying to move Mozgov until a future year?
0: The more and more I think about it, it looks like 2018 should really be the sort of year that they try to 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 strike while the iron's hot. I'm sort of a firm believer in in this classic um development arc for for lottery talent, which which is basically that a lot of these guys come come into the league and they they're really good prospects. They were obviously successful at the college level, but then when they get to the pro the pro level, they need to refigure out exactly what parts of their games translate and which parts don't. And that takes some time. Over that time, they start to learn exactly how they can be effective and then get sort of experience individual success. And then the next step of that is sort of integrating that individual success into team success. And I think the Lakers are really at the point where they probably need to give their young guys one more year to see exact to, to sort of figure it out a little bit more before they start to um to offload them or start to add big name talent to the roster this year which may sort of interfere with that natural development process that that I just explained. So I think that they should be looking more towards 2018 where even stretching Mozgov or Dang becomes more realistic because then the dead money is on their roster only for 5 years versus if they were to do it this summer for seven years and also i think that they should probably try to roll over most of their cap space just to try to optimize 2018 where they can then you know leverage like julius randall's bird rights if they need to like in restricted free agency and really go after a player at that point and then if they need to make a trade for a second sort of star level player or open up cap space to try to get to signing two stars, if maybe not at their full max, then, then, then close to that or offloading money via attaching an asset, then they can do more of that then than, than rather trying to, uh, to hit a grand slam like this summer.
1: I agree with all that and want to mention that there's one other basic point is that those contracts become a lot less onerous when they run one extra year off. Yeah, like,
0: you know, so no one is trading for Daniel Moskov this summer, you would probably have to attach Randall Russell Ingram or the or whoever you draft or the pick to to get off that salary. And that's pointless. Right? The Lakers are too, even though I like their young core and I like their assets, they're still too asset poor to, to say, let's give up one of these lottery picks, basically, to get rid of a bad contract. They need to just sort of wait this out. They also need, need to see if, if next year they can find ways to integrate Moskoff and Deng where they can, in a more limited role, be effective for shorter stretches, like like, and for Dang, that probably means playing more power forward rather than, you know, trying to beat closeouts from small forwards and shooting guards out out on the wing. And for Mozgov, you know, like, well, l- let's not get into Mozgov. <laughs>
1: That's totally fair. And also, some, something else to remember with the Lakers is, well, I think they should consider if they have somebody they like at center at 28, the pick they got from the Rockets in the Corey Brewer-Lou Williams swap. They also have Zubach, who's intriguing as a center. And then they I think they still want to figure out what they have in Tark Black. And so you can go in with those guys and you just kind of make an overall ecosystem. Plus, I think, as you do, that they should play Randall at center a little bit. So you roll with what you have there. You use this time for evaluation. But the other part of this, which is exceedingly important, is that if they reach a point where they decide one or more of these young guys is not right for them, maybe not necessarily that they're bad, just that they're not right for them. You need to be ready to pull the ripcord really quickly because part of the secret of successful GMing in that way is getting off a guy before everybody else realizes what you already know.
0: Yeah, and I also think too that that part of that is just these guys can turn into something good and and have value some somewhere else and you just need to find maybe a better fitting player, right? That I mean, think about it this way that we just so earlier I was talking to you about Oh, I think that that Ingram can be a pick and roll player and he can be a guy that plays with with the ball in his hands and Russell can be that type of guy too and Randall can too. Well, if you fast forward a year or two and we're talking about the Lakers trying to grab, you know, a high impact free agent, potentially a Paul George, that's another player who likes to ball in his hands. And at some point, you also have to sort of build a roster with right fitting pieces where you don't have so many sort of uh, high usage. I need the ball in my hands players in order to be the right the right type of team with right fitting pieces that can actually play the style that, that you want to play. And then at that point, you're going to have to make some hard decisions. You know, I really like this guy, but I maybe now need to find maybe a lower usage guy who I can slot in, who fits better next to George and Ingram and maybe Alonzo ball. Right. And that's where I think the Lakers, that's going to be a, to me, a good problem to have But it doesn't make the decisions any less difficult. And being able to leverage that is just like you said, what smart front offices do for a living. And it's how the Spurs, you know, can turn like a George Hill into a guy like Kawhi Leonard. And there's, you know, multiple examples of that across the league with really smart teams. But but that's what you do when you want to build a contender.
1: The last point I want to make on this is something that you've talked about a little bit, which is that, well, it's not ideal just because you want to make your decisions as early on as you can. The Lakers really can use this year for identification, for valuation purposes, because the rubber doesn't really meet the road for them until next summer. That's when Julius Randle can be a restricted free agent. That's when D'Angelo Russell is extension eligible. Theoretically, Nance is as well. So they can wait if they have to, and that'll work out reasonably well for them if that's what they need to do.
0: Yeah, and I would also add to this that, you know, next year's pick is going to the 76ers. And so there's now no finagling the lineups or... Or shutting a guy down or multiple guys down. You know, there's, there's incentive to win games, but there's also um, zero incentive to lose games. And, and I think that that allows for a, a much more straightforward approach and. And um, mentality of what you want to get out of next season, and it doesn't necessarily have to be well. We're going to win as many games as possible. Obviously, that's what every team says they want to do. Go, go, win into to a new season. But the Lakers can can also so, sort of say, well, you know, we want to try to put these young players in the best position to succeed and let the chips fall because wherever they fall. It's not going to impact our draft position. It's not going to impact, you know, um, the tank or lottery balls or anything like that. It's just next year can be a pure evaluation year while also trying to leverage your lineups and get the most out of your players that you can. But, but, but really seeing again what you have and how these pieces fit so that in the next year or two after that, you can make even more informed decisions.
1: Right. And I think they should just be kind of winning ambivalent next year. They can do it. It, it. They they don't have the incentive, as you said, to lose, but they don't have to force it because they don't have to say, hey, we need to play a wall dang as much as possible so we can try to win as many games. You do what's best for your team. And if that leads to a bunch of wins, great. If it leads to a bunch of losses, so be it.
2: Yeah, it,
0: that's that's exactly where where I'm at go, going into next year. It's funny, too, because we always talk about the off season as this time where trades can be made and, and are the Lakers going, going to make moves. But, I mean, you know, trade deadline's not, not until Feb- February, and that's a long way from now. And, and, and so I, I also think that the Lakers can be in position to potentially make a deal at, well, at the deadline too. We're, we're, we're so far away from that that we just don't know what the team is going to look like or what direction they're, they're going to go in. And that's true for the 29 other teams as well. And, and, and so I think that speaks to your idea too about, um, needing to be able to sort of uh, pull the ripcord quickly or make quick decisions. And for some reason, and maybe this is just my naivete about the new front, front office, but I do feel like that they're going in a little bit more prepared and willing to be flexible around those, those ideas than maybe the previous regime.
1: It also helps that they're not as tied to those players. You know, that the idea that it's not an it's not a referendum on them like it would have theoretically been on Jim Buss and Mick Chupchak if they pull the ripcord on any of these guys, whoever it really is. So I think that helps them in that sort of a way. But the only other thing I want to ask you is just: is there are there any other Lakers storylines that we missed that we should discuss before the end of this?
0: No, I think that you know, it's it's to me it's pretty clear where well where they are right now. I, I mean, they won seventeen games um, the season before this past one, and this one they won twenty six games, and and that was after um, a five game winning streak, like like in the last. Um, you know 15 games or so. So they're clearly not a great team at this point. They just need to continue though to to build in the right way to to trust in the culture that they're trying to develop and build with Luke Walton and and the new front front office and and be patient with what they're doing rather than trying to um to turn things around quickly. And from all the sound bites that I'm getting from the major players, um, in terms of Polinka and Magic Johnson and Luke Walton, they seem to understand that, which is something that I'm appreciative of.
1: It's a good way to end it. Thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thanks, Danny. Anytime, man.
1: Thanks again to Darius Soriano. You can read him at Forum Blue and Gold which is forumbloomgold.com. And you can also follow him at the similarly named at forumbluegold on Twitter. And next up is Derek Bodner. Derek Bodner covers the Sixers for himself. He has an amazing Patreon, patreon.com slash Derek Bodner. And I also really wanted to talk with him because he is a draft guy. More, 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 not more so than the Sixers, but it's another really big strength of his, which has been a confluence over the last couple of years. And so we talked not only about really the Sixers pick, but a little bit more broadly about who he likes and who he doesn't like And that conversation runs about a half an hour. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. The Sixers ended up in a fascinating situation with everything else. But before we get into the offseason, you and I haven't talked in a little bit. And I wanted to run by you just briefly what you think the biggest takeaways from the 2016-17 season were and how those tie in with this offseason.
3: Well, I think the biggest takeaway is that Joel Embiid is legit and not like legit like he's going to be a good player. Like he is going to be... I mean, I, I don't say this lightly and it, I feel stupid saying it, but I see very little Pat that he isn't a superstar if he's healthy. And what he was able to do on the court was so impressive that it really does change the, the way you look at the franchise going forward. Now, a lot of that is resting on that right foot. Uh, it's, it's a little disconcerting because he is 7'2", 270 and has that history. But just knowing you have that kind of talent on board, now you're looking at ways you can complement him, looking at ways you can really take this to the next level. And that's, that's by far the biggest takeaway. There's a lot of other ones. You know, Rashawn Holmes was a, a really good takeaway. Robert Covington, the way that he evolved as a defender was a takeaway. But just the fact that if Joel Embiid is on the court, this team is going to be relevant sooner rather than later. That's a really big deal.
1: Yeah. Not only being able to pencil in a guy, but being able to pencil in somebody who has serious potential. When I was putting together my all defensive teams, I was sitting there going, if he had played enough games, Joel there. probably would have been my second team center. Yeah. And yeah.
3: that's incredible. For a rookie who didn't play in two and a half years. Yeah, it's absurd. It really does have a... You have a, a building block, not as a player, but as a team identity. Like I said, when he is on the court and when he is on the court, they will be relevant. They will be a good defensive team. Now you start adding in some of these pieces here. Like I said, Robert Covington, because he developed on that side of the court and he's so versatile. He's a piece too. And it will be, you know, now you get to add two more really high-level pieces to that. And and this team that was kind of, you know, there was a theory behind what they were doing, but there wasn't wasn't really a whole lot of... The picture wasn't very clear. It's becoming a lot clearer now.
1: The other part that ties in with this is just how you're feeling about Ben Simmons at this moment. I mean, it sounds like his checks are getting clearer, but he's still not going to play in Summer League, right?
3: Yeah, that is the, that is a running assumption. They haven't really... Come out and said that definitively. They're leaving it up, but they they are saying prepare yourselves for the fact that he is not going to play. It does seem like he's ready. He's currently playing three on three. I would imagine that will ramp up the five on five really quickly. I don't think there's any real concern that he won't be ready for training camp unless there's a setback. Knock on wood. But yeah, he he seems like he's progressing. Just don't expect him in Vegas or I forget the other one they're playing. Are they playing in Utah? Or-
1: I think they're playing in Utah. Yeah. So the thing you hopefully can count on though is that the the player they take at number three, assuming they keep that pick, will be there. The third spot is fascinating in this draft because there is an assumption, whether that holds or not, that we know who the top two are going to be in either order. And so, as the Sixers, is that sort of freeing in a sense? I mean, obviously they would love to get one of those top two guys. They're the top two for a reason, but now it's basically a whole universe that's open not only to them, but to theoretically somebody who wanted to to acquire that pick because they like one of these guys better than everyone else.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's freeing in the sense that you, there's at least some certainty, as they say, the draft starts with the Sixers at three. But it is, you know, it's a little bit difficult because you have Embiid, you have Simmons, you have Covington. Theoretically, those are guys who you would expect to defend your three, four and five. And then you start looking at what a lot of people consider to be the top prospects after Fultz and Ball. And it becomes a little bit questionable. And I think that that perfect combination of upside and fit, it's going to be a little hard to get both. You know, you could look at Malik Monk. I think that's overdrafting him at three, but certainly he fits. A lot of people consider Jackson or Tatum to be in that tier And I'm not sure either of them really fit all that well. So it's it's freeing in the sense that you have a little bit of certainty, but it is certainly I don't think the optimal spot to be in. Uh, certainly moving up to three is better than saying at five and taking Monk. I'm not going to say that, but it does make the decision a little bit more complicated.
1: And the other part that makes it so complicated is that at least as of now, there doesn't seem to be a lot of clarity in terms of who other teams prefer because you can play those games in terms of, oh, we can move down and get the guy we want at six or at seven or something else like that. But I don't think any team can be sure at this point that the person they like, if they're that is going to necessarily be there.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so much so much talent in the draft and so many diverging opinions on a lot of these prospects that just because you have the third pick doesn't mean the person at four, five, six doesn't believe that the next best player is going to be there when they select there. So yeah, I agree with you. You can't count on moving down and, and getting, you know, additional pieces. I think even if you can move down, you know, I think a lot of people may be a little bit, a little bit underwhelmed when you find out what that return is. A lot of times it does probably make sense to just stick at three, take who you think is, is the best spot for your team. It's a really tough a really tough decision that they're going to have in front of them because, like I said, there's just not there's just not that combination of, of player, with the exception of, of of maybe Dennis Smith Jr., who has both upside and fit, and even he is questionable on both of those.
1: Yeah, he is, and I, I like Dennis Smith a lot. But talking about the idea of fit is that if you're assuming Ben Simmons is going to be a key part of that, and you know, I think that's fair. That's a, a fair thing to think, though. I don't think it's as definite as like Embiid because we've seen Embiid do it against NBA talent. He has proven it in a different way than Simmons has. But so if you're assuming that at the bare minimum, Simmons is going to be having the ball in his hands a lot, that changes what you want in every other player. And so Smith, De'Aaron Fox, you know, a lot of these kind of guys, you can think about that way. But at another point, you can also approach it as just hey, let's take the best player available. You never know how the rest of this is going to work. And especially when a lot of the guys who I would argue are probably the best players available at three are going to be point guards, they can still provide value anyway. But the other part is that the Sixers have a lot of intriguing, talented point guards anyway.
3: Yeah, I mean, they do have some depth. They certainly spent some money on that position last summer in giving Jared Bayless a three-year deal. It's not a huge deal, but it's still a three-year commitment. Brian Colangelo last year, he had a slam dunk of a decision. He didn't really have to, I mean, I I think he did fairly well with his two later picks, but in terms of the top of the draft, the one that really mattered, he had, um, you know, he had a slam dunk and now he's going to have to certainly, he's going to have to earn his keep a little bit more this year.
1: So I know you're a draft connoisseur beyond being with the Sixers. So I think it's good to start with this question, which is if we assume that Lonzo and Fultz are the top two in either order, and I didn't say them in that order, because I think that's the, the preference. Who do you like best? Absent the Sixers, absent team fit, just who is, who would be third on your personal board?
3: Oh, that's a that's a good question. It really is as mixed in the middle mixed in that 3 through 8 range as I've ever seen it. Maybe maybe last year was somewhat in the same because they but for a very different reason because there're just not a lot of prospects that I liked. In this year's draft I think there's a lot more that I think are worthy of at least a top 5 kind of ranking. I like Jackson, but not, I think, in a way that a lot of people do. Like, I think a lot of people view him as a safe prospect because he has such a diversity of skills. I kind of like him as if that jump shot works out, I think he could be a really good third option. And that's a I, I think that jump shot is a huge question mark. So that's, that's to me a very risky proposition. And if he doesn't. Fix that jump shot then I think a lot of his other skills, which are very legitimate, if not necessarily elite, but all all those other legitimate skills, you question how much that's really going to be a factor at the NBA level. And he shot the ball well from three. I think it was like 37, 38 percent. I have no confidence in that form. I have no confidence that that wasn't a small sample size aberration. But I like him in in kind of an upside play because I do think if that jump shot comes around, he can be a very good third option for a team. It's just I don't know how probable that is. I think Tatum and even Jonathan Isaac are safer bets because I think Tatum, his ability to score, his ability to shoot, I think that is going to translate, Uh, maybe not from an NBA three-point range, but I think there's some indication that it might. And I think Isaac might be the safest of the three, which is kind of weird because he was certainly the most undersold but I trust his jump shot more. And I think his defensive versatility is great. So if you're asking me, I might take to me, it would, it would be a hard choice between Tatum and Josh Jackson at three on a team agnostic big board. I might lean Jackson just because I like his shot creation and I'm willing to take a gamble on that shot, even though I'm not very confident in it, but it would be, it would be, it would be a a, a tough gamble. I do think, you know, De'Aaron Fox is interesting. He's another one. I don't, especially on my Sixers big board, Without that jump shot, it's going to be very tough. And I'm not sure he has quite the defensive versatility some people give him credit for because he is only, you know, he he does only have like a six, five, six, six wingspan. And more important than that, I think his lack of strength might impact that a little bit where it would make him tough to really switch on a regular basis. But I do like him. And I I mean, Dennis Smith might be the second or third most talented player in this draft. It's just how much stock are you willing to put on it? So I think there's a, uh, to be honest, if you're asking me to rank those guys, I'm not sure I have a firm ranking yet, which is really weird for this late in the draft season. But I do think each of them carries with them some pretty significant intrigue and also some pretty significant concerns, too.
1: What is so intriguing to me going through this class watching more film is how it feels like a lot of these guys have higher ceilings than usual for that range and lower floors than usual for that range. Yeah. And so that makes it hard in terms of because if you want to do that. But the I want to go to Jonathan Isaac because I think Isaac is fascinating because there is this idea about oh you know you want the high ceiling the high ceiling guy somebody who can really have a big role i think there is a very real value to a lower usage guy who is good at what he does and there is a very clear concept to me of how jonathan isaac can be a useful player as a starter on a very very good team and i love capability it's a big important thing but then you think back to me to like somebody like marcus smart wonderful player great talent was amazing as a shot creator in college, but a lot of that stuff ended up not being that important to his professional career.
3: Yeah. The way somebody asked me about Isaac recently, and he he would probably be pretty absurdly high on my big board because I do value defense so much and I value versatility defensively and his, the ability to switch. Somebody asked me, well, look, do you ever think Isaac's going to be a top option? Well, no, I don't. So are you okay hitting a double with a third pick in the draft? And my response was, well, yeah, I'm okay hitting a double with the third pick in the draft if he can defend one through four. And I think Jonathan Isaac is, you know, I think the way we view that a lot of times, we very rarely do we view defense as 50% of the game. Even as, even if we talk ourselves into it, we kind of lump defense into one skill or one one asset a player has. The way that he can, you know, at, at 6'10", 6'11", with that wingspan what does he have like a 9 foot standing reach 7 1 wingspan just ridiculous length the way he can then move his feet his feet like a guard on the perimeter it really is unique and he plays angles pretty well like clearly he can get better he's he's still a young kid but he you can switch him i mean Florida State switched him onto the perimeter quite a bit Uh, And he held his own more than he should be capable of and have that kind of versatility, then also have the length and the ability to cover ground and be a weak side presence. And also then the quick twitch reactions on the perimeter to four steals. It's just a very unique package. And I think as he rounds out his his body and gets a little stronger, I do think he has a legitimate capability. Not that you're ever going to start him on a point guard, but that he could switch onto positions one through four. And I just think that has such incredible value for a team's defensive schemes and simplifying what they do as a team especially when you start now talking about the Sixers context and having Covington and Simmons who at least have some of the physical attributes to do that as well, even if Simmons maybe never got down into a stance uh, once during his his year at LSU. He at least has some physica- physical capabilities to do that. With Embiid behind them, it could get really interesting really quickly.
1: And one of the questions with Isaac that is intriguing is kind of, so there are different elements of switching. So one is like, do you how how well can you defend each different guy? And then the other one is, How good are you on your primary assignment? It becomes less important in a switching system, which is part of the reason why guys like Blake Griffin have done better in that format than in other ones, because he's better in that than man to man. But I think that what I like about Covington, Isaac, theoretically, and Simmons, either the three of them together or two of the three, is that I think you have enough good defense that when you shift it around, it's going to work.
3: Yeah, no, I I agree too. And I, I mean, look, I think Jackson would be interesting just because I think his ability to defend like a straight two might be a little bit better. I think his perimeter foot speed might be a little better. I think you might have more upside there, but that shot is such a huge concern. And I, I, and I really can't understate how important that is, not only for his fit with Simmons and Embiid, but also for to really unlock the rest of his skills that he, you know, I think I I, I feel more confident in Isaac being, you know, more of a I, I feel like I, I feel more confident in his fit with Embiid and Simmons, I guess, is what I'm getting at. It's just a, a really unique package. And look, people will say, you know, was he a little bit too passive offensively for Florida State? Yes, he was. You know, I think uh, I've talked to people around that program and. You know, they say it's much more of a confidence thing. Like I think a lot of people will read that as he's not committed to the game. I don't think that could be further from the truth. Everything I've heard is he's a hard worker and he certainly gives effort and has intensity defensively. It's more of a confidence thing, and uh, maybe he is a little more willing to work within a team concept, so ha has both positives and negatives in that he might not ever reach his full offensive potential. But I just think with that kind of defensive versatility, it would be, a, like I said, it would be really interesting.
1: Going back to to Josh Jackson, one of the things that makes me a little queasy with him, and I'd say this is also true with Tatum to a degree, is that if the parts of their game that don't work fail, then it makes their unusual positives less relevant. Like if jo- Josh Jackson, he makes really good passes, but if he can't really shoot that well and he's not—I don't think he's good enough to like run an offense. Then you're going to use that in transition, but you're not going to use it as much in the half court, especially if guys are helping off him. Right. Tatum, if he can't
3: get back by that first layer, then how how great is that passing really going to be?
1: Right. And then with Tatum, it's it's a, it's an analog to that, which is. I, I like his handle. I, his passing is is all right for for a guy his size, but it's like, how often are you going to use that? If he doesn't reach that level of you know comfortability, where he has it, because the NBA, they're always unless your team is unless your team sucks, and then in that case, you have a different conversation. You're going to have somebody who is better at running the offense, better with the ball in their hands, than Jason Tatum.
3: No, I agree, and I mean Tatum's interesting because I do have some confidence, not a whole, not like. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I have more confidence in his jump shot than than a guy like Jackson or even a guy like Fox. And if that happens, you know, I I think he's he's clearly got all the moves in the world in terms of uh, of getting to the basket to overcome some of his his athletic deficiencies. And his footwork is so good. And the diversity of his moves is so good that if he does, if that, you know, three point shot doesn't prove maybe more than expected, then he could be a you know he, he could be a dynamic scorer. But like you said, there's so little margin for error because he's not an elite athlete, because he's not an elite passer or a playmaker. So his his shot has to come around. And those moves that worked at the college level, they really have to work. in the NBA too.
1: Is there anybody else you've seen that kind of in that range that maybe, so we talked a little bit about Malik Monk, that you would be interested in just kind of like trading down or just seeing if the Sixers could get into that mix, like a guy that maybe you like more than other people?
3: Oh, that I like more than other people. I'm kind of a home run guy. So I'm a little more willing to take a gamble on, on Dennis Smith than I think a lot of people would, especially because I do think, you know, I trust his shot off the catch more than I do off of, you know, on the move, off the dribble. And I think that's really important. And as long as he can space the floor offensively, then I think he's going to provide some value off the ball in a a Ben Simmons world. And I also think looking at him a lot like Fultz at the top, but I think if there's anyone that the NBA floor spacing is really going to benefit, I mean, NC State's spacing was just, I mean, it was abysmal. It was a train wreck. And it's not only the fact that, you know, all of a sudden he's going to have seven footers, seven foot two guys in the NBA who can shoot and stretch the floor and open things up that way. But his big men just seemed like they had no real idea how to make use of his his talents and his 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 style of play. And there was a lot of wandering. There's a lot of of packed lanes that he had to navigate through. I do think the NBA is going to help him quite a bit. I do think that situation was really bad for him in terms of, you know, making the most of his strengths. And he didn't necessarily react well to that in a lot of ways, certainly with his body language, his defensive effort, which just wasn't there. But he, I mean, he does have that rare talent and he does have that ability to both work a pick and roll and shoot off the catch. And because of that combination of upside and fit, I probably have more interest in him for the Sixers than I would for other teams. Clearly, Monk is a guy who, you know, if I have him rated six, seven, eight on my big board, you probably move him up a spot or two because he fits so well. And I think the biggest reason he fits so well besides his shooting is because at 6, 3 with a, a less than impressive wingspan, playing the two is going to be very tough for him. And so I think on the Sixers where he could or be the shortest defender on the court is the way I'll phrase it. While also not having to really be responsible for running an offense could really help him. And I think part of the reason, you know, he was very good at making contested shots last year at Kentucky. And part of that reason is because he has a high release and he gets terrific elevation on his shot. But you're always worried about in the NBA when guys are an inch or two taller, an inch or two quicker in closing out. If that could impact him a lot more than it did at Kentucky. But now that he's going up against, you know, six three point guards instead of six five, six six shooting guards on the Sixers, I think that could help. You know, make the most of. Leak Monk there. And he's not necessarily you know, I don't I don't think he's the best prospect in that range. Those kind of limited one dimensional guys, you know, if his his shot's struggling, and yeah, he has great athleticism, but he doesn't get to the rim all that much. So if his shot's not if he's struggling with his shot, that that's a, a really risky gamble. But I think the Sixers might be the right team to take that risk. So You know he's interesting. Like I said, he's not my favorite prospect, but he also does fit so well that I have to consider it.
1: The other thing I want to talk briefly about is that the Sixers have a ton of cap space, and this might be a time that they actually consider using it, not just as you know, way being a dumping ground. And what are you thinking about that potential process, and whether this is the year to make that sort of thing happen?
3: Yeah, and I mean, so much of that is going to depend on what they do in the draft, but I do think they're going to make a real run at somebody, whether that's Kyle Lowry at the point guard spot or whether that is J.J. Redick as, as more of an off-guard who, again, could end up being your smallest defender on the court because Ben Simmons is going to handle so much of that responsibility. But I do think they're going to make a run at somebody, uh, and I think it's probably going to be somebody that maybe the more devout process trusters, quote-unquote, quote of, of the Sixers' rebuild might kind of cringe at because it might be on the wrong side of 30. But I do think they're going to make a run at somebody like that, try to really present themselves as a more legitimate franchise and, and a team that's maybe moving quicker in a direction than people expect. So that maybe in future years, they have a little more drawing power, whether that is in free agency next year or whether that is in something like a trade where you trade for a guy you know who has maybe a year or two left on a deal and it's a little easier to convince him to stay on the team because you have, say, J.J. Redick and Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid now making this team more relevant in, in terms of the NBA league-wide landscape. So I think they're going to pursue somebody exactly who it is. We'll see. I mean, those those are the two names right there, Redick and Lowry, that have been the most speculated about and will be because of various reasons. But yeah, I think they're going to make a move.
1: Point guard is also a major, major question. And one of the things, because I mean, there's the whole issue with Ben Simmons. That's why I use primary ball handler, not point guard, because I don't think he can defend ones at all. But that is a place of strength in this class. And one of the challenges for the Sixers is like, if they could get like George Hill on like a two year deal, that would be awesome. So you don't have to take that long term risk and do something like that. But players that good generally get better offers than that. And it's not like it's not like you would be taking that sort of a, it's not a discount in terms of salary, it's a discount in terms of total value. To play for a team that's a championship contender, I, mean, I think we're both optimistic about what Philly can be in a couple of years, but that's a very different thing. And so I would like that sort of an idea, but it's kind of like the contract that's going to work is not one that I would be willing to sign. It's more conceptual than that.
3: Sure. I mean, George Hill would be the thinking of the defense of that core. Let's say you have Embiid, Simmons, Covington, throw in a, an Isaac into the mix and a George Hill and then somebody else at the two that defense could be, I mean, that could, that could certainly be a top 10 defense if Embiid knock on wood. And I'm, there will come a year where I don't have to qualify every statement I make with Embiid's health, but we're not quite there yet. But that, that team with Embiid on the court would be very good defensively. It would be fun to watch. Like you said, most of these guys, it makes more sense for a true contender to overpay these guys. And it, it does for somebody like the Sixers. So you always wonder what, Whether or not, because this is the last year with a real significant cap jump, even though there's not nearly as many teams that have space this year as last year, but you you wonder who's going to find a way to clear cap space to make a run at a guy like that and give him what he really deserves. Whereas the Sixers, like you said, you're going to be worried about years more than money.
1: Two other abstract questions, just because I like them and because the Sixers are the team that inspires the most of them for me. So this one is, from what you know right now, and this could obviously be nebulous, would you rather have the fourth pick in this draft from the Lakers or their pick unprotected next year?
3: That's a great question. The way I looked at it before the draft was if the Sixers got the number one pick, then I would have wanted the fourth pick this year. Because I feel like you have, you have three studs, and Embiid, and Simmons, and Fultz. You're looking for role players that fit them. And I felt like this draft was, you know, that three through eight range was really good on having high high quality role players. But since the Sixers got the, you know, the third pick in this year's draft, I'm kind of okay that it carried over to next year. Whether that's to be used as a trade chip or whether that's to be used to get a guy like Doncic, who, who I like quite a bit, or a guy like Porter, who, you know, we'll see if he fits, but who has an immense amount of talent. I'm kind of okay keeping a lottery ticket for next year's lottery. Because you didn't get that third kind of high-value, star-level type prospect. I think I'm okay with it transferring over to next year. But it, 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 it's tough. This is a, a deep draft and a draft that there is some some guys who fit a position of need. You know, I think if there was a second pick in this year's draft, I'd be a lot more willing to take a guy like uh, like Monk, who maybe doesn't have the talent that I would normally consider in the top-five pick, but does have the fit. Or a guy like Dennis Smith Jr., who might have the talent to be a top-five pick, but, you know, has questionable whether or not that's really going to translate i think if there's a second pick in here i'd be more willing to gamble on guys like that so it's i could go either way but right now i think i'm okay with it you know holding over to next year
1: yeah i think that's a good way of thinking a healthy way of thinking about it if i had thought of it that would have been a better that's a perfect distillation the other thing kind of broad scope point that i wanted to talk about was the idea of renegotiating and extending Covington, because that is another way to use some of the cap space that Philadelphia has, and I've always been intrigued by this idea because part of what you can do in terms of negotiation is say, "Hey, we're giving you a raise in a year that we don't have to," and that I think that, if it were me, that that would be effective. But the other thing is that we haven't seen it really used that much for non-elite players. I mean, we saw it with Russ, and we saw it with Harden. The other team that has done it is the Nuggets. The Nuggets did a renegotiation extension with Dill Galnari that I think worked out reasonably well for both sides. And Covington, to me, seems like a natural fit for that if they can come to a number.
3: Yeah, I mean, Covington is an interesting case because, like you said, you don't normally see this with role players. It's not something that's typically done, but the Sixers have so much cap space and cap space. I mean, they could have 50 million in cap space this year. And that's to the point where you can't spend that. You can't spend that responsibly. It's, it would be really tough to go out there and spend that responsibly. So he's going to make one million dollars this year. If you say, hey, look, and I'm going I'm to pick 20 million dollars because it's a round number and because the math gets a lot easier. But if you say, you know, hey, look, in 12 months, basically, if you have to give him a, a four-year 60 million deal or maybe even more than that, that might make you a little bit on, you know, a little bit queasy. But if you say, look, we'll give you $20 million this year when we only have to give you one. And then you can, you know, I think the first year of the extension then can start at 60% of that. So then after that, you're looking at a 12, 11, $10 million kind of contract if you if you can you know, decline it. That's a lot more of a tradable chip throughout the years. It's a, a guy who's going to cost you a lot less on your cap because you you front loaded it this year. And if you're looking at it from Covington's perspective, you know, if you're if you're gonna sign a four year sixty next summer and you're gonna get a million here, you only have to get like sixty-two, sixty-three million dollars over the course of, of really what we're now talking about five years. It's a lot more palatable to do that, especially because when you're looking at it from the sixer standpoint, you know, that's money that you're probably gonna have to spend either late in free agency or next trade deadline just to get to the salary cap floor. So you're really not even losing a whole lot in terms of flexibility in terms of payroll. To go do it, I do think unless they have like the perfect summer where they pick out two real guys who they want that they can sign to contracts, I think that makes a lot of sense. The CBA is kind of weird. You can extend a contract after two years from when they signed it, but you can't renegotiate until after three years. So they could offer him an extension on July 1st when the new CBA takes takes effect. But in order to renegotiate and extend, they have to then wait until November, which is a three-year anniversary. So... It'll be interesting if they do go into into basically the season with twenty million in cap space. I think that makes a lot of sense.
1: At the same point though, they can also come to that understanding, just not formalize it until then. I think that might be the way to do it. Is so, you know, oh sure. Yeah, sure. I, I think that would be what would happen. And I'm totally on board with that idea. I mean, I think that's one of the best uses that they can do with their twenty seventeen cap space is to make their future burden more reasonable. And I think it makes a lot of sense for Covington because you're getting it's basically the equivalent of getting a gargantuan signing bonus for a guy who hasn't made much money in his career so you get that life-changing money right away and i mean what's the downside the downside for him yeah maybe you're gonna end up getting you could have gotten a more lucrative contract but the overall total value it's hard to match that you know it's hard to it's hard to reach that level so i'm i'm totally on board the last thing, because I talked about this on last week's Real Jam Radio with Sam Vicini, my crazy idea is that I would love to see if the Sixers could theoretically get in the mix for Anthony Davis either when he becomes a free agent a million years from now, in twenty twenty, I believe it is, or in the or through a trade. And just conceptually, like, how much of a world breaker would a Davis and Bede combination be?
3: <laughs> yeah, that would be fun to think about. Yeah, it's it's hard to really think that far ahead. But when you take a guy with his kind of—I mean, you, you won't find a more diversified big man than him. Uh, thinking of of two of the best players, especially with a guy like Embiid, you know, that's kind of always been one of the knocks on on Davis is that maybe his team defensive impact isn't quite as great as what you would expect from his athleticism and his own individual numbers. I'm not sure that's been entirely fair. I think a lot of that's been situational. But if you put a guy like Embiid behind him, it would be insane to think about. Uh, I'm probably not going to spend too much time doing it because I don't want to get—I don't want to set myself up for a letdown. But yeah, sure. If you can, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's a team in the league where if you could pursue Anthony Davis, you wouldn't. And the Sixers certainly have an unusual amount of future assets at their disposal. Uh, that 2018 Lakers pick, which is now unprotected, is a really great tra- trade chip. The 2019 Kings pick which is now unprotected is a really great trade chip and I think a lot of people still view the sixers as being one of the worst teams in the league and we'll see whether or not that's true and a lot of that comes down to health but those are two extremely valuable trade chips as well
1: and they also have the ability to take on bad salary at least for the time being so if the, I don't think that I don't think there's any chance that they a realistic chance that the Pelicans del Demps thinks about that this year. But maybe next year, depending on how that things go this time next year, maybe they're considering it a little bit because teams usually wait to trade twice. What?
3: They do. Yeah. I said Wilt was traded twice.
1: You never know. Wilt was traded twice. That's absolutely true. Any, anything else you feel like we should discuss? Anything I missed in terms of the offseason for the Sixers that is a part of the story?
3: Uh, I mean, I think what happens with uh, with that other big man, uh, Jaleel Okafor, I think he will... It seems to me like it's time from all pers- everyone's perspective to move on. We'll see if that actually happens. I don't know. I don't know if Brian Colangelo is really willing to completely drop his asking price to the point where a deal seems feasible, but I do think it's something that kind of needs to happen for everybody involved. I hope it does happen. Um, we'll see, but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wide open off season. Like I said, the draft pick uh, trades, I do think they're going to be active on the trade market. I think Brian Colangelo is certainly willing to go out there and, and kind of, you know, push this thing along at a quicker pace than maybe we've seen in the past. And I think he has the assets to do so let's hope he does it wisely, but it will be a, uh, you know, they the Sixers really should be one of the more interesting teams in the off season because they have, so many different directions that they can go.
1: And I think that's one of the other parts that I'm so intrigued by with this year is that some of the teams that are would be the most interesting with or without their draft picks have high draft picks too. And so you're going to see a lot of these things kind of flow together. And that's going to be fun. I mean, with this, with the Sixers, with the Celtics and just overall, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to be a really, really fun year.
3: Yeah, it should. Thanks so much for coming on. It is my pleasure. Anytime, Danny.
1: Thanks again to Derek for taking the time. You can read him at DerekBodner.com. You could subscribe to his Patreon, patreon.com slash Derek Bodner. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Derek Bodner That's D-E-R-E-K-B-O-D-N-E-R NBA. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. This was a long one, but I think it was really fun. And I like the idea of doing three shorter conversations as opposed to one longer one with the ability to go really in depth on each of these teams and had a lot of fun doing these conversations throughout the day. It was actually actually on Friday that I recorded all this stuff and three great people to talk with, of course, Jared Darius and Derek and if you like the episode let me know it's the type of thing that I, I consider over the summer for those of you who know I do kind of capsule offseason review season previews in around August September or something in that note and so those are kind of similar to this but a little bit different and then we'll see with the rest of the rest of the offseason I'm, I'm piecing together exactly what I want to do but we of course still have season left to play so I'm excited about the NBA finals looking forward to that and a lot going on you can also check out I'm going to be doing series previews for the finals, not only with Nate Duncan on Dunked On, but through Locked On Warriors, because the Warriors are in the finals, so you can check that out as well. Gonna have some Warriors-themed guests, some non-Warriors themed guests to go through the remaining days until we finally actually get the NBA finals. If you want to support the show, there are a series of great ways to do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can also subscribe, download every episode. That's particularly great with a show like Real Jam Radio because I am not consistent with when it comes out, so if you subscribe, then you can get it when it comes in. And so if it's a Sunday and a holiday weekend, you can check it out that way. And the other great thing you can do is you can check out our sponsors. So for this episode, that is ZipRecruiter, a great way to both be employed and then to find employees. And so you can go to ZipRecruiter.com sportsfan to post jobs, so as an employer for free and check it out. So it's a pretty impressive platform in terms of what they're trying to do and the success that they've already had. So you can check that out as well. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, at Danny LaRue on Twitter or or even better, Danny LaRue NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. Also proud to be a member of the CLNS Radio family. It's been fun with this, and also, of course, Jared Weiss is heavily involved with that too. And it's another way to listen to this podcast, to listen to the garden report that he does, and numerous other excellent podcasts. You can check that out too. Have a new episode this upcoming week. Don't know exactly when, don't know exactly what the topic is. It probably is not going to be an NBA Finals preview because I'm spending so much time doing that in other places. Didn't want to duplicate it as heavily in this space, considering this can be a lot of other things. So, working on exactly what I want to do. But thank you so much for listening. Take Take care and make it a great day.
4: If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited World Class Treatment Center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. call 1888 recovery now that's 1888 recovery